Website based in St. Louis and is edited by Sarita and James McNally. And during the conversation, we had we discussed themes of publication and public making in Little Rock and in North Little Rock. Lea came also, and Omaya and Tara Stickley were part of a uh, invited panel to help give context to those ideas during the discussion. Yeah, um, I was. I was invited, I, I think, because uh, I'm a local artist. I deal with some publishing, but mostly online. And I was lucky enough to show at Good Weather uh, back in 2013. Um, but um, uh, it was a really fun conversation. And though we talked a lot about the book and specific themes and concepts in the book, the conversation sort of transformed uh, and became uh, it became largely about Little Rock and the South and, and creating a public down here. So I was really happy to be a part of it. Cool. Uh, so listen to the talk and we will see you on the other side. So we're all here kind of gathered around a book release for a temporary art review and Sarita Hun's in town to, uh, she's brought the books here and we're facilitating a conversation around the ideas of publishing and public making and I've kind of invited some of the people that form my community and my public and sort of my feedback loop in central Arkansas and North Little Rock and Little Rock to be part of this conversation to help facilitate it. So Deshaun is a local comics artist and uh, film enthusiast and has organized several forums around that. And Leigh Johnson is a contemporary artist and also a comics artist that is here tonight. And then Sarita... Hun is here from St. Louis and from Springfield, Missouri, and from Berlin. So maybe you guys introduce yourselves, and then I'll introduce Good Weather. Um, okay, I'll go first. <clears throat> um, my, my name is Leigh Johnson. I'm, I'm from Little Rock, but uh, I met um, I met Haynes and be, became uh, a Good Weather fan early on. I, I saw the first show when um, in 2011. Uh, and I've been back and forth, but I've been in Little Rock for the past two years, and I'm trying to figure out, well, I'm just being an artist in Little Rock, and I don't know, what else? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I guess, I guess what Good Weather is, is a contemporary art gallery in North Little Rock, Arkansas, that I started in 2011, and uh, had our first exhibition in 2012, and Layet was here for the deinstallation of that first show, and really, kind of, uh, as the space continued these sort of uh, 
publics were created, like Jerry Phillips, who's here tonight, uh, entered that my world. Uh, and and so the public here is is a weird like sp space, I think, and, and one that like really delves into like uh, interpersonal and like like singular relationships with people. And so that's what I was, I guess, trying to get to is why Leia and Vishan are sitting here. But I think you see like the intimacy of this group. These are all people that are part of my world and a part of these friends' worlds in the art world. So yeah, Good Weather is a space that has solo exhibitions by quote unquote contemporary artists. And uh, we were profiled on Temporary Art Review, which is a website. Uh, we were profiled by them in 2013. And this book that is being released tonight is a archive of, a selected archive of the writing that they put on there. And Good Weather is part of that publication. And mostly what you'll find me writing about in that is the familial and family style of Good Weather and the openings that occur. So it's not often that, uh, my, you know, a lot of times I come home and have the exhibitions and the family is here and we put it on and people show up. But a lot of what you, is reflected in the book is that family aspect. But here tonight I want to to at least reflect some of the connections I had that have, have extended family and have come out of that space. So Deshaun is a person that I've had a relationship with since we went to SCAD in 02 to 06 and reconnected here in Arkansas and more strongly through my relationship with Layet. Right, yeah, like uh, like Hank <coughs> said, when we met, we were an undergrad at SCAD. Um, and what I'm doing now is but basically trying to connect to the public through film. I curate a film series with uh, some friends of mine and we produce a podcast for that and we really try to get people involved in talking about film, discussing film, and trying to um, sort of create a, a community of people who talk about it in Little Rock. And we kind of take as our inspiration for that um, the ideas around what some of the French, wave, French New Wave artists were doing where they would have these cinema clubs where they would sit and just watch movies and talk about them. Um, and so trying to engage the public that way. And I've also worked with Layet, who I'm trying to get into comics, teaching him what I know, um, because that's what my background was in my undergrad, was comic books. Um, and so trying to like, spread that and get people to do, get into that and zine making and um, expression through nar uh, visual narrative storytelling. Cool. <clears throat> do you want me to give a long introduction or a short introduction? I think an introduction to the website and then what the book is. Okay. Um, so my name is Sarita Hahn, as Haynes mentioned, and I'm very excited to be here, so thanks for hosting. Um, so just to give you a little bit of history about the, the website itself, uh, we co-founded James McAnally and I in 2011, and we really started um, with the goal of, first of all, focusing on artist-run and independent spaces and projects because we saw that there was a huge uh, gap of coverage of these kinds of activities. And we also knew that a lot of these things were happening in all different places around the country. Um, not just New York and LA, but Houston, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Little Rock, you know, everywhere. And um, so <clears throat> we also started out as being very geographically inclusive. We wanted to really focus on things happening outside of the major metropolitan areas. So those were kind of the two things that we started with um, when we started the website in 2011. 
And over time, that's expanded. Um, we we really wanted to kind of cover a breadth of activity in the United States starting out with and after kind of a year or two of doing that, we were able to do, um, you know, feel like we covered some ground. And then both because we relaunched the site as what we called an anti-profit model, as well as eventually getting a small amount of money through a grant as kind of seed funding for our writers fund. Um, we were able to kind of stabilize the site in a way that we could then reach out to people in slightly more intentional ways. And so then we kind of broadened the idea of what kind of voices were being omitted from the dominant conversation and went um, almost immediately into doing a feature on intersectionality issues. So we had like five or month, six month period where we spent each month looking at issues of class, race, gender, sexual orientation, all this within the context of the art world as well. So um, basically kind of working through that to the point we are now, this year we're celebrating our five year anniversary of starting the site and we really wanted to take our work from being solely online to something that was more physical and tangible. So. The first thing we did is we organized an exhibition that we looked through our entire catalog of over 200 contributors, uh, guest editors, and then also spaces and projects and profiles that we had covered. And we curated an exhibition that was held at the Luminary in St. Louis in the spring. It was called Document V or Document V. Um, and then the second part of that was to create this book, which is both an exhibition catalog for that exhibition, as well as a selected anthology of writing from the last five years from the site, and then also some things that were commissioned for it as well. And so um, we really wanted to like think about the first five years as you know trying to fulfill these initial goals of covering these activities and these kinds of places and these various concerns. Um, but then also we're starting to think about the next five years and this is the beginning of that and um, I would say the kind of third part of it is doing this book tour and it was really important to us as it was from the very beginning that if we're going to be doing coverage in different places for not to create a dynamic where we're just kind of going to the place and trying to figure it out but partnering with spaces and people in that place and they are really telling us like what's going on there because they're the ones that know right <coughs> Um, so we had the same approach when we wanted to do a book tour and tried to reach out to as many people who were in the book as possible or who were kind of interested in the same kind of things and ask them like, okay, well, what can we use this as an excuse to do that's going to be really helpful. So when Haynes and I started talking, you know, I was really like, okay, what, what's going to be super particular to um, Little Rock and Arkansas and, you know, so we kind of worked on and Haynes worked a lot on talking to people locally and thinking about the way in which um, kind of alternative publications or artist publications or publications in general can be a way to not only create publics but also deal with potentially social justice issues and other things as well. Um, I can stop there yeah. or I can talk a little bit more specifically <coughs> about the book. I think maybe that segues into like why I brought a, a comic sort of uh, parentheses to like who I invited to the show, but one I was thinking about the last time that printed matter and that the a public surrounded that was the '90s and the punk scene and that was a strong world in Little Rock and that was one 
that um, informed me as a, a young adult and I think informed a lot of us growing up here in central Arkansas. <clears throat> and so that uh, dovetailed with Nate Powell, who is a North Little Rockian and a comic artist that just won the National Book Award for March, which he collaborated on with uh, Congressman John, um, John Lewis. John Lewis. And that, like that being a, a comics, comic book narrative and then also uh, something dealing with social justice, I felt as though there was some kind of uh, legacy that was being created by his path, by Nate Powell's trajectory, and also then what this conversation that Temporary Art Review is part of currently tied in with current comic artists here that are publishing in different ways through the Arkansas Times and writers as well, like people that are are part of the, the discourse and dialogue that's happening locally. Um, I felt like there was some kind of space there for this conversation to uh, get mixed up in, in what you guys are doing internationally. Um, and then connect with all these other people that are here. Uh, I think it's important that our voices are all heard and how our organizing and our uh, participation in the discourse locally uh, can be part of you know, the voices that are lifted by temporary art review. Um, yeah. So, I don't know how to open that up except that, that that sort of sort of enters that first question, that first prompt in the in the paper that we were handing out. Well, what I can do is I can talk a little bit about the book specifically and kind of lay out at least what we're thinking about in terms of what it means to make a public and what that can mean. And then maybe we can go directly into the questions if that works <coughs> for everybody. And, and all of us, I mean, we're kind of like initiators here, but the general idea is to have a really informal conversation. So if other people here are involved in projects or public making or whatever, like it would be really great to hear from you as well. So, um, so I'll just say a few things about the book. Um, we to have it published, uh, first of all, Haynes was the designer, so it's also really great to be here um, with him to celebrate the book. Um, <clears throat> we worked with Inca Press, and before I forget, because I always do, uh, we do have copies available here today, as well as two other publications from Inca Press. Um, the book will be fully launched in January, and it'll be available for $26.50, but I can have copies available today for $20, so if you are thinking about getting it, They'll be um, more cheaply available here uh, this evening. And then um, there are two other publications by Inca Press as well, which is the Institute for Connotative Action, which is another artist-founded organization that we're working with. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, the idea for the book was to do partially a exhibition catalog and then a selected anthology. And I won't go into it in too much detail, but I'll just let you know that um, Basically, when James and I were planning for this book, there was, um, we really, we, we knew, uh, we had a, a lot of ideas behind the scenes, and it was just really important for us to kind of forefront those in a more prominent way. So we basically wrote this, like, very long essay that we ended up splitting into the introduction and the postscript, which frames the entire book. And then within there, there is, um, information from the exhibition, and then there's three sections of profiles that we asked different spaces and projects to write for us as a self-narrative, and Good Weather was one of those. So we have a, a section on spaces, 
a section on platforms, which are other online sites that are doing um, different activities, and then one on what we call exchanges, which includes um, residencies and alternative schools. And then the other three sections are kind of thematic threads that we felt were really prominent in the site that might not have been highlighted otherwise. Uh, the first section focuses on art criticism. The second section um, is called Whose Bodies, which is again pulling a lot from that intersectionality feature that we did. And then the final section is called What Do We Do Now? Which both highlights kind of a, a history of different gatherings that have happened over time where people have tried to kind of address what issues are happening. So it starts out with an interview with Occupy Museums. It goes into some coverage of the the three hand and glove conferences that happened over the last uh, four years, four or five years. And then the last sections, the last really three essays in that section are more speculative and trying to think about, okay, this is where we're at and like how do we want to think about moving forward. So in the context of this talk, I thought it would be helpful just to kind of like summarize a couple parts of the introduction where we first of all talk about the history of artist publications and the role that they have played historically and really um, describing from the inside but also defining in so many ways different art movements historically. So thinking back to things like Bauhaus, Dada, Surrealism, you know, Constructivist, Minimalist, those all were kind of art historical movements that had artists and um, allied people like within those communities writing about their friends, basically. And that's how we really understand those movements at, that, uh, at the current time. So we were really interested in thinking about our activity as an extension of this history of artist publications. Um, we are artists, we are artists founded ourselves. We work primarily with other artists and curators who aren't themselves primarily critics. Um, so there's a way in which the people who are doing the things that we're talking about are the ones writing about it as well, and that's really important for us. And for that, for us, that comes down to this idea of partisanship, that we're really ultimately a partisan publication, which means that we have an agenda on some level. You know, we're really interested in highlighting particular kinds of work in particular kinds of places, and this is very different than sort of the like traditional commercial, you know, art journalism. Where, or even criticism, you know, where it's supposed to be this objective thing and, you know, you come in and say it's good or bad or whatever and, and, um, and it's, a, it's a really different dynamic than that. So that's kind of the first um, part that we talk about. And then the second part we talk about what this means to, is to make a public. And um, on a very basic level, it's just an idea that publication is literally a form of to make a public. Um, I think initially for us, as I mentioned, we were looking at the activities happening in all these different cities, but realizing that those cities weren't necessarily talking to each other or aware of what was happening in different places. But if you think about every one of these cities having at least two or three or four or five, sometimes 10, 20 um, different kinds of these artists founded or independent spaces and projects, and you multiply that by 50 states and three cities in every state. And we're not just talking about like hundreds of spaces, we're talking like thousands and thousands of things that are happening all across the country. And so when you start to like 
pull those things together and have an awareness of the sheer like um, scale of this happening, uh, it's really quite exciting. And so we wanted to like create an awareness of the public of people that were um, involved in these activities, uh, a certain awareness of each other. As I've been organizing this, though, um, there's another version to make a public that I wanted to mention, which is that if you look at the definition of the word public, the initial thing is this sort of like the general public, right? It's like kind of people in general, people in common. The second definition has to do with people who are part of a special interest group, you know? So it could be a reading public or it could be, you know, kind of something more general than that. But the third definition of public is actually specifically to do with the arts. So there could be like a theater, like whoever is the audience of the work itself is a public themselves, right? So it could be gallery viewers or whatever are their own specific public. So I really started thinking about it as kind of like moving through that order, let's say. So um, for us, if we're kind of addressing a very specific contemporary art audience, you know, we're interested in the ways that that can be brought in to a special interest group that might be interested in art in general, and then eventually I think we have some goal or, you know, most people who are engaged in these partisan activities of like reaching the general public, right? So there's this way of kind of moving through those different ways of thinking about um, what a public is. <clears throat> so that's how we think about to make a public. And then the final question um, that we are thinking about, which, which pulls out a lot of these questions that um, Haynes and I are looking at, is like, what does it mean to be doing that during times of crisis? And there's all different crises. You could say crises have been going on the whole time, but I think we're also, everyone can agree to some extent that we're in a fairly unique time of crisis. And so what role can we play to sort of... Um, highlight and then ultimately kind of critique and also ultimately propose or speculate about what can be done moving forward. And that's something that's really um, important to us. So I just wanted to read a very brief couple of paragraphs where we kind of frame that a little bit. <clears throat> In 2011, as now, many worlds were unwritten. Our work considers the ways in which the ethic of representation arises out of omission a case of consistent neglect within the overarching provincialization of the contemporary art environment. It is first perhaps a question of access. Who is allowed to speak? What acts are transcribed? What publics are manifested as a part of contemporary arts militantly advancing discourse? Contemporary art review emerged out of a consideration of geography in both a formal sense as we were intentionally decentered and dispersed in our structure coverage and concerns, as well as in Spitback's consideration of geography is how the world geo is written graphy. Publishing throughout the past five years became a kind of enunciation of these porous contours, which were variously labeled as off-center, margins or new multiple centers, outer regions, and that included intersectional considerations of race, class, feminist, and queer discourses. The site's archives are an overlay of multi-authored maps, geographies defined by the individual places themselves, making a map by writing it incrementally. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that as how we were thinking about it, um, 
not as an individual or two-person effort, but that um, there's also the immediate public of our contributors and the people that are reading the site, and that that's kind of the starting point to move out from there. Which is interesting, like, to think about, for me at least, the people that I wanted to invite and I was reaching out to as part of this discussion were people that were uh, actively engaged in the endeavors of organizing around social justice and also, like, have been engaged in that for a long time, uh, at least in, in the personal conversations I've had with them. I haven't had a chance. I don't know if anybody's part of the Little Rock uh, Collective Liberation in this group of people, but I reached out to them to come and, and also um, <clears throat> try and find a space between what they're doing and what we're doing here at Good Weather, at least bringing artists that are kind of engaging in that discourse in their own practices. So the last year of programming that I've had at Good Weather, I tried to, in some of the work that I brought down, uh, pose these questions uh, with Sandra Perry's work or Matthew Kirkhoff's work or Tony Hope's work. And I don't know if that's something that's been perceived uh, from an outsider perspective, but I feel like there's been uh, a heightened, uh, basically a cultural epiphany that we lived in the Gilded Age and that there are systematic uh, spaces of oppression that were kind of hidden for a decade, maybe in the aughts and slightly after. But Good Weather started out of a kind of a naivety and, a, and also a desire to have a strong discourse in, uh, around basically something different than what was normal here. And finding these people like Jerry Phillips and Leah Johnson through that have brought us to a place now where you're kind of having those discussions and connecting with them uh, when they're happening elsewhere. I don't know, Tara, do you have something? Uh, to bounce off of that, um, <clears throat> I was still thinking about um, what you were saying, Savita, mm -hmm. I noticed that you uh, were using etymology as a touchstone mm -hmm. to sort of wriggle bigger ideas. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to do when we're dealing with all these issues of dematerialization and trying to connect with people across vast spaces and you know, the internet and, and not being around bodies and objects as much. And I think it's a really interesting move to look for the sort of concrete or concrete element or object at the base of language because it's always there. Um, I think it was Tanner who said that um, at the bottom of, you know, at the bottom of the word democracy, there is the Greek polis, mm -hmm. and those things are, are still alive in all of those words. We just aren't, we're just not paying attention, mm -hmm. I guess. So um, I don't know. My mind is sort of swirling with these ideas of how does how can language help us. Um, how can the language help us wrangle with all of these sort of airy, mm -hmm. slippery um, things that we're dealing with right now? Strange political realities, um, you know, alienation, techno technological issues, and all those things. So that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking about right now. Um, I mean, this makes me think about a couple of things. The first thing is that I've been doing a lot of reading, talking about how we're so inundated with like visual information now in this unprecedented way through Instagram and the internet and like, you know, TVs and everything that that actually has 
created this reverse effect where we somehow get more information out of writing now than mm. we do in visual ways because it's mm. like something that you have to absorb in a different time frame than like all the visual language. And so mm. I think it's interesting to see how, you know, our side and other sites and, you know, other kinds of publications, like somehow writing um, has this weight mm -hmm. to it all of a sudden that maybe it didn't have before. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, um, which I kind of mentioned before, is as we organized this book launch, it was really important to me especially to like go to the places you know, that we want to do these events at as much as possible. Because I think what is missing from this online platform are these conversations. And what's been so credible about you know, approaching each place and saying, how do you want to do this, is that every single meeting has been totally different. But it's basically involved the same number of people, you know, like in the same engagement and everything, but the conversation is totally different, you know, and it has, I mean, it's not totally different. There's certainly themes that are across the board, but like how that happens in each place. And so, <clears throat> I don't know, to, to make those individual meetings or, you know, places where we're physically together is totally, totally important. But, I mean, I kind of along those lines, I mean, I think, again, I, I'm really interested in hearing from, you know, other people as well. So I would be totally into, like, if people just want to kind of go around, if you have any thoughts or maybe even if you look at some of these questions about your own work. And I would be really excited to hear kind of from, from everybody if you would like to, to say a few things. Yeah, I don't live here year-round. I'm based out of Joshua Tree, California. I'm just kind of an emerging artist, so I don't really do work that affects the public directly. So I'm not sure if I can like answer any of these questions. So what's your name? And oh, I'm Molly. Um, I'm from Laroque, so <coughs> I'm from Deshaun, uh, and late from high school. But yeah, I was mostly just interested in like observing the conversation. Yeah, and I think you know there obviously are artists and curators who are thinking about these things explicitly. But I think ultimately every artist, you know, also is thinking about these in some form because like your artwork, you know, is existing between you and the public in a certain, you know, capacity. And so, um, so it's something that, you know, can be kind of addressed or, you know, inherently like kind of has questions surrounding it in some form. So, cool. Thanks for sharing. I'm Jenny. Um, I'm from Chosen Years and to my major I kind of live a dichotomy. I'm a filmmaker along with my husband. We founded a core productions in Springfield, Missouri, but I'm also by year from doing my geology degree. So it's a little <laughs> dichotomous there. But um, uh, I totally lost where I was going here. We've been talking about this for days. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really, I, I would be more interested to hear what everyone else yeah. has to say. So, but that's who I am. I'm Jerry, and I live here in Little Rock, and I've been making work for quite a while. And it's interesting because your interest in language is so far removed from mine. <laughs> because right. I feel, yeah, it's like I have a really tenuous relationship with language. <coughs> I think that that comes through my work a lot. Mm. And so I'm just trying to locate myself within the scope of your public. No, I mean, I think that, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, Jerry, uh, for me, 
has a, a certain sort of space in like my path as an artist here in Little Rock and to think too about how the last couple of years have shifted where like Jerry came of age in the art world that was the 90s and identity politics and and, and his work was dealing with language and both like understanding that world and reaction to it and his path has gone from LA to Arkansas to New York and all you know certain paths back and forth and he's been part of art worlds here that I'm learning about over the past kind of several months in conversation with him that existed and then sort of left and I know there's a lot of local organizers and artists here that are part of art worlds that I don't even know about because I'm not on ground all the time and I think that's um, an interesting sort of conundrum with good weather is that the public is the, my family like I was saying before and then the people that sort of enter the space but it's certainly not the outreach that I'm doing locally to sort of be at spaces and to be part of communities but my communities are these people but yeah anyways that's something maybe we can discuss later or you bring up like your path as an artist and how currently it seems I don't know like the work you're making seems really powerful in, in this moment and the kind of grappling you're doing with language right well I started um, like in graduate school my thesis project was using text from comic books and combining it with uh, documentary photographs from medical mm -hmm. textbooks and kind of creating this kind of quasi-narrative on the wall with these images playing with this sort of text that didn't always line up with with what you were looking at visually so um, I was and it was the era of identity politics and so you know that was the thing and I kind of gradually left that more political agenda um, behind and tried to get the work to be more personally meaningful. Mm -hmm. So it, I've been abstracting it ever since and oddly enough I'm still using words and text but they're a little bit different mm -hmm. at this point. city. So, um, 
And I think finding good weather was like a really important step in feeling like I could connect myself to real people that I like and that are doing cool stuff that I care about. And um, that isn't about necessarily an institutional art thing. I had been really involved with the, the art center and that was just like a really, really frustrating public to try to engage with because it was so driven by institution. And <clears throat> I guess I'm also really wrapped up in something, I have to do a grasp it, but the, this idea of like a post-capitalism or an anti-capitalism, and she said something about like anti-profit. And that's something that I talked to my friend about who has a small gallery in Chicago, is like he intentionally is not trying to be an institutional gallery. He's trying to give voices in the same way that you sound like you're talking about to people that are doing stuff that's important. And he gets caught up in like, well, if I'm not actually able to sell their work, what, am, what, what is my role as a gallerist to help their career along? And that's been a really interesting question. I think it's very pertinent here, maybe even more so, because I think this place maybe has an even harder time than a place like Chicago does to like keep an interesting thinker here. Like I consider leaving like because you know finding this public that I've been looking for, I have it now. But I still get caught up in like daily yucks of my politicians that make me think I gotta get out of here. I just got to. And <laughs> so I think having this community is massively important to me and I'm, I'm not ready to give up on it, but I really ask myself almost on a daily basis, like, mm -hmm. is it worth it to fight here or not? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to throw in two things I can go back to later, but like kind of to answer Marissa's question, I mean, one of the things that we really have been not only trying to embrace, but has come up in a lot of these conversations already is the role of collaboration and like, it's like organizations working with each other as a way to like not duplicate efforts, for example, and that's something that we try to be really mindful about and then also collaborating with people who, you know, are focused on other things. Like if there's a site that's only covering Dallas or like we work with Arts.Black, for example, who focuses on black criticism and like, you know, not trying to do what they're doing, but like instead partnering. And so, you know, we're kind of have this like joint effort moving forward. Um, and then also I wanted to mention with anti-profit, the way that we really thought about it is that profit, whether, or even like finances, whether through granting or ad sales, were not going to be part of our decision-making process. That's kind of how we started out. And so at that time we had no money. The first three years of the site was completely volunteer run. Um, so we decided to translate our ad space into a kind of currency so it was like the only value we had to give in a sense. And so we created a system where every contributor was allocated um, ad credit and they could use those that ad space for themselves or they could barter it to somebody else or they could sell it themselves and have the money, you know, but it at least created this kind of currency among us that wasn't based on finances. Um, and then when we were able to start the Writers Fund, then we allowed people to choose between getting paid cash or they could have ad credit instead. And some people choose ad credit still. Um, 
in, in a really gross sort of way, an artist still has to buy toilet paper mm -hmm. at the end of the yeah. day. So it's a cool idea, but like, how do you get people to stay if there isn't? Well, for example, you're talking about like, I, the I gallery. I being you know, an artist like, because I couldn't afford to be an artist, so I got work. <coughs> I started focusing on work, and that's yeah. what I do. And I found ways to still sort of like pretend to be an artist or something, but <laughs> it's not like I consider myself an artist anymore. I'm like I'm doing work that's <coughs> engaging to me, and I get to do interesting things and interact with people who definitely consider themselves artists. Right. But it's like a different. I, it's a well, different thing, and I think I'm a symptom of a no, totally. Times, I mean, the point I was kind of making about the gallery is that that doesn't mean that we're not also selling ads or that we're not also applying to grants. It's just that for us, it was important to pull that from the center of our determining our future. But as you said, people still have to eat, right? So, you know, that doesn't mean we're inherently against the idea of selling ads, for example, or selling the work. Like, I think it, for us, it's just about having a multi-pronged approach that allows us to have freedom in our decisions, but then also the realities of the fact that we really did want to pay writers. We don't want to not pay writers, you know, and, and so we want to give them that option. Um, but I think there's also this mythology about artists living off their work that's actually not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, the percentage of artists that live off their work totally is a very tiny percentage, and those people, it only happens for like five, 10, maybe 15 years. Even if they're like, you know, being um, collected by the MoMA and like all these things, like, you know, almost all of those people have teaching jobs, you know, or they like do commission work or something. So I think that there's also this idea that like, unless you live off your work, you're not an artist, that is really problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and almost everybody I know, including myself, like has three, four jobs and like, you know, it supports the things that don't make that so for me like just acknowledging that reality is kind of a first step and saying like this is this is the reality that we all share together so I, I well I think that's interesting to think about Arkansas as a space that is more affordable than other places and like good weather for me was it could only occur here in Zach's garage with no overhead and to, to have that support, like again, like this bird's nest of a, of a family has allowed me to to do the things that I've done with the gallery space without having the pressures of paying rent or buying toilet paper. <clears throat> but I, I think now I'm feeling that pressure, like how does it grow, how does it connect with a larger audience and how do you support the artists that you have been showing uh, while like sort of maturing in, in a way. and. Uh, Arkansas, though, for me, re represents a space that is uh, decentralized from the rest of the art world and can, with the people that are here, like... Except our artwork. Except our artwork. <laughs> <laughs> but art, like, and again, like, I'm not present here all the time. I'm moving a lot, and, and but my rent is really little and or, or very, almost zero, because I live with my sister and I live with my brother. Um <laughs> But there's space here, there's an af affordable space here for us to function in, in our creative paths. Um, so I think that's a conversation to be had, too, here in North Little Rock. And not we're not in Helsinki or in Berlin or in New York talking about these conversations. We're actually in a place that I think all of us can pay rent. And anyway, Lori. What's your... Uh, I talked to someone already. She talked, so she's <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, my name is Laura. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I've been working as a designer in, Hel in the Helena, Arkansas for about two years. So I'm very new to the uh, Arkansas public. I've been always mapping out central Arkansas, except for right around here, Kelly and Helena. For the last six months, I've been in the artist residency and, and living in Helena. Again, the low cost of living has opened up quite a few opportunities for experimenting with different projects and figuring out skills and goals. So um, my name is Kelly and I was actually, I grew up like 10 minutes on the road in Jacksonville and uh, my parents are still there. And uh, I was like that angsty, whatever teenager felt like I could not move back again. I didn't have that public and I like left and I like hated it. And and then like I did grad school and I suddenly had no money. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I guess I'll do like Arkansas. I found Helena and it ended up being like, I've been like the most creative and productive in Helena that I've ever been. I granted I'm still very young, but like, um, really like they like. I I doubt the public a lot, but like, like what public means because like, there are like ten to fifteen people that come to our shows in Helena. Like, I mean that's not how the rest stays in Helena, you know. Like I just feel like, I don't know. I just doubt that a lot, and like what part of our community actually shows up and like turns out and what people don't even know or care to know about what we do and I don't know but um I've been working for like for that a lot yeah and yeah <laughs> my name is Kelly also <laughs> um and I I'm from Memphis um and so uh, Kelly invited me and met her from the Art Institute um in the institution and um, also you know met a lot of artists that worked at the institution and that was really wonderful but it was a lot of stuff around um, and so I think from like looking at a lot of artists that were involved in institutional critique it was like I don't know where you go from here it was kind of a dead end um, so then went came back to Memphis um, I ended up doing of my being in New York, it was like even the work that's made that you could tell that it was for, you know, you could tell what was for profit and what wasn't, and um, I always was interested in more of the maybe performative or more socially engaged things, so um, yeah, community and space is so important, um, and it's just interesting, yeah, I think to be able to see what what is happening in other places because it still does feel so centralized and um, focused on New York and 
and then this like sort of follow up to me that <laughs> I don't know. So it's I think it's great to be um, engaging in other communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Sarah Strickland, and um, I'm a musician in Mahat originally, but um, I have my I've been employed by both uh, exclusively in nonprofit arts essentially my entire adult life. Um, and by both institutional level organizations and independent or small startup organizations. And Centuria Literoc, um, I work for the library system, which is kind of in itself an interesting position. I teach um, performing arts to kids. But um, I have, I mean, Joe knows a little bit about some of the crap that I've tried to pull off. Um, but Literoc is a really, like, kind of what Haynes said about how because it's so cheap to live here and and also because the community is so small and it is pretty much possible to know everyone, um, it's really, that affords a lot of freedom to live in zone and power. <coughs> and I'm drawn to institutions because of the ways in which they can be instruments of change and progress and use their mighty heft to sway opinion and things like that. But the individual freedom around here to collaborate and get things done is profound. Um, and I've found a lot of amazing growth in that. Um, so yeah, I kind of like ping-ponging off a lot of what y'all are kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, so the mic's here too, so. But, so. Um, so I'm gonna use this momentum. Uh, I, I just wanted to, uh, kind of respond to a couple things and I think what was interesting in your question is in some ways like um, about like the size of publics for example is like to me it's something that there's no one answer to like for some people it could be a small group or some people that it could be a big group but the larger question for me is that I am not somebody that feels like art inherently has to be this public service thing like I also think that art can function in a way that it's a special kind of education just like or it's specialized knowledge in the same way that like biology or philosophy or whatever and there's cases in which like having a small group with like a very specific vocabulary like kind of makes sense as a discussion but that doesn't mean that there isn't a reason to consider a broader public or to make that more accessible to more people but they're kind of separate considerations in in my way of, of, of thinking about it anyway um, and where both are really important so maybe that's like a way to like kind of ask you all too is what your thoughts are about um, you know is it inherently important do you think to have like a large public or is there something about the scale and like how does that draw into like maybe because I'm also I'm from Springfield Missouri originally and I've been working there a lot in the summers and like it's a very small community as well and at one point I was meeting with a bunch of people and they they were really focused on like okay how do we get all these people to go to all these openings on this one night you know and at a certain point I'm like well maybe you should focus your energy a little bit more on like strengthening your community within itself and there's a kind of like we'll build it and they will come kind of attitude that I I tend to adopt as well and so you know like 
at what point is it important to put those energies in those places maybe so yeah i'd be interested to hear from from any of you and anyone like working locally like how that's working out. and really fast is there a difference between community and public like earlier when I looked up the definition there's these kind of three levels of public there's like the general public there's a special interest group and then there's like more like the audience of the thing so community to me kind of falls in between in this kind of special interest group kind of thing which could be geographic community it could be you know cultural whatever um, so I think they're interrelated but maybe not the same thing that's yeah. that's my kind of thought about it yeah, well, I mean, for, for what we do with the film series, it's kind of it's strange because we've never been told that we have to have like a certain number of people show up. It's hosted at a, at a theater, a mm -hmm. commercial theater. Um, and, you know, sometimes turnout is like 17 people. I think at most we've had maybe 30 or almost 40. And we've never been told that we have to hit a certain number. But I always kind of feel like we probably should be trying to grow an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and plus, we just if we're picking these films that we show, like we want people to show up and see them, experience them, and interact with them, and, and talk about them. So, I've, I'm always focused on trying to get as many people out as possible to see these things, um, especially because, like, lately we tried to make sure that we have a diverse lineup in terms of directors or um, people on screen. Mm -hmm. And so, I think it's also important to have people out to see a movie that maybe they don't they wouldn't necessarily find on their own. Another question is for the group. So another thing, thinking again about like the sort of like the material part of language, the other thing I was thinking about after you were talking about your project is, okay, so you have an online um, platform and you've decided to print and now you're going around with the goal in mind of getting bodies into a room physically present with each other and that kind of conversation that only really emanates from that kind of thing and it, it you're sort of hitting on that too with your film series and obviously Haynes that's what that's what happens here um, and I have an online magazine as well and that's it always feels like the in, the end point what I really want is just to get people in the room together and I don't know I guess I don't know exactly what my question is but I had when I was living in New York I you know I had conversations with people who are like you know writing about artists like Ryan Jacarton and saying things like we were post like post self and identity is so fluid now and disembodied that you know almost like the body is obsolete sort of you know um, with the way that we like ostensibly communicate via the internet and our iPhones and stuff so like why is it still the goal and bringing this back to social justice like why why is it still the goal to have bodies in a space together and I you know, I I think it has to happen. Like I was I was part of Occupy Wall Street when I was in New York, and it was you know the things that were really profound happened in open spaces with you know hundreds or thousands of other people risking their bodies actually um, to enunciate an idea. So I guess I'm really old school in thinking like we really have to bring people physically together for some kind of new intellectual space to grow. So I'm interested in what you think about that mm -hmm. and what other people here think about that. Sure. That was a long-winded thing. Yeah. 
No, I think it's an inter- I mean, I, the only kind of <clears throat> add-on to that is, like, in, in a way, you're talking about protest, and, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of times, though, what, like, how does that change things, or does it further divide it? And I, what I find interesting about good weather, especially, is that the types of people that come here, it's, it's people that have different viewpoints, and so there's maybe 75 people that show up for an opening, and the conversations, some, for me, they've become, in a way, an opportunity of learning for, say, my father over the period of four years to have discussions with Jerry's friends or with the artists that are coming through. And like that, the intimacy of different types of people who come, who have different opinions or even different sort of experiences in life, uh, for them to be here discussing things, that change happens on an individual level and then goes out to sort of you become more aware and more uh, like you have a, lar- a, a larger ability to be to be an ally for those groups that are protesting, uh, or at least to sort of like Zach and I, especially to have conversations here to at least meet in some point where we understand each other. But um, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Berlin where this is a very prominent conversation about the sort of like role of technology as like a post-human, post-gender, post-whatever mm-hmm. kind of way of thinking. And I think that's kind of an interesting realm for people to, I don't know, be exploring it on some level. But for me, it really, like the answer to like why we have to meet in person, like has really come down to me in the last week in the way in which all of these things are being, um, revealed about the role that the internet is playing and how it's shaping our reality whether that's like the Facebook echo chamber that's been talked about where you know you only follow the things that you like and then you unfollow the things you don't like and then you only your reality is this thing that self fulfills itself mm-hmm. um, to the point that there are you know uh, uh, like this firm that's coming out that's this London-based firm, Concordia, who is basically worked with Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and Brexit to like, you know, take our data and do individual level kind of ad marketing to people based on their psychological profiles, you know. And so that coupled with a couple of other things basically makes the internet be this reality that doesn't connect with our individual daily lives. And if that has such an impact on how people perceive the world, then we have to start like meeting in person or we're going to lose track of that reality, mm-hmm. like in a really literal way. Because again, this is something that's only come to light I, for me in the last couple of weeks um, post-election. So um, I think that, yeah, we, the danger of not doing it is that we lose track of that um, reality that exists outside of that mediated space of the internet, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so you think, so we have to come together in order to, almost to, like the friction of disagreement? Well, and also to have diverse mm-hmm. perspectives, like Haynes is saying, mm-hmm. you know, because if the internet is shielding us from mm-hmm. diverse perspectives, mm-hmm. the only way we're gonna get them is by going outside of I mean, it's really crazy that it's to that point, but it's, you know, when the sort of, like, network of, like, alt-right conservative 
news is skewing Google searches mm -hmm. like <clears throat> that anybody does. That's that's really crazy. That's like a that is literally an alternate reality that exists online. You know, um, so that's why I go back to collaborations um, with people and. Uh, the importance of knowing what else's activities are happening and not trying to duplicate them, but like, you know, that's one thing I'm interested in doing personally is just trying to find all these things and, and make connections between people and projects so that they can work together. Yeah. I'd like to add to that. Um, yeah. I guess I, I tend to, uh, I guess I wrote my short thesis in grad school about about the uh, about an artist's um, so I have to stutter sometimes about the responsibility of an artist what, what an artist should do and I sort of boiled that down at the time to using the only using pertinent um, using pertinent um, um, pertinent um, materials for your idea so I was making conceptual art and stuff at the time but I think that the responsibility of an artist is a really interesting question and a really um, during a political crisis, especially, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I think a lot of us felt after the election, for instance, that we needed to make very politically charged work. Then it became more of a question of just making work, not being depressed. <laughs> and then after that, it really boils back down to the essential question, I think, which is to be an artist, which is, well, what do you want to make? Like, you can make anything, mm -hmm. and I think you should make whatever you want, and you shouldn't really have. I think your biggest influence should be yourself. Um, it's 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 like what Jerry was saying earlier. He made he made he sort of thought about identity politics, and then he started making um, more personal work. But art is always personal, and I think the the most important sort of public at this moment, um, which sort of uh, represents a lot of what I think we're describing at least physically probably in your book and in general during this conversation, was the ghost ship in um, space in Oakland. Yeah. And uh, I think that place really represented what artists want in America, and uh, um, which is like, you know, beyond corporate, I mean, uh, beyond sort of commercial um, aims. And um, it's about community, and it's about this sort of DIY aesthetic that Haynes was wanting to talk about. When it comes to like comic culture and zine culture and punk rock and little rock and things like that and what was most important about that to me was that it was just people coming together just doing whatever and um so i guess a, the, a public for me is essentially having people around you to support whatever it is you're going to do even if even if what your art even if your art's not political necessary even if it's just goofy like I think a lot of my comics are really just kind of goofy and dumb, but that's okay too. Um, so it's uh, so like the ghost ship and then this gathering like we're doing tonight are kind of like <clears throat> I know there's there's that model like the like um, um, beat poets would sort of all live in one house and take turns working, you know, in order in order to pay rent so that their friends could have the time to like just sit and write and. Uh, that's a form of public and one that I'm But I'm going to challenge that by saying like, how diverse, so alone, so we can talk about our different viewpoints, but like how diverse, like we're attracted to people that think like us. Like that's, mm -hmm. we gravitate towards people that have very similar uh, careers or 
don't know. I think you just attracted the people who, who get it, you know? But you get it. Okay, okay. <laughs> so you literally, like, I mean, that's my point, though. Like, yeah, but that could be from any, someone from like anywhere. It's like we all get it. So we're all here in the same room, and it's like, sure, a lot of us have very similar beliefs. I, I don't know. I just, like, I think that's why I was saying earlier, like, I, I question how, like, how diverse the space can be, like, how, like, diverse the public can be. Like, I don't know. I think it's interesting, like, for, for instance, Tara wrote a review in Arkansas Times about good weather, and it's the first time in a couple of years that someone's attempted to do that. And, and I was at a Christmas party with my family, and my Aunt Jenny said, oh my gosh, the way that she captured every part of what good weather was and did it in a way that like, she understood what was happening, but also understood how to communicate that to a larger audience, a larger public, was really beneficial that you don't have to necessarily get it totally, right? Like that you don't get like to be part of it. You can get what the, I guess you can support the person that's doing it. And like everyone has like different interest points too, so uh, I might think I get it, but it might be a totally different. Well, I think the point James is making, yeah. kind of bring it back to the theme, yeah. is that one possibility is publication, right? As a as a way to reach a larger audience that might not walk into a gallery, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an interesting strategy that seems to be something that people are finding like that can be helpful. Um, but I mean, I also think that like why I don't inherently think that art has a responsibility to deal with social and political issues that like some some art does very explicitly and that that's part of the conversation that then surrounds that those activities as well so I mean I think again like I think but saying that art has a responsibility to anything in particular is to me inherently contradictory but I think that for example um, I'm really interested in the social and political implications of starting a space, let's say, like Good Weather. And maybe the artists that are showing in that space might not be doing social and politically engaged work themselves, but the context of which that work is in is inherently trying to deal with the social and political implications of running a gallery in a different kind of dynamic than what a commercial gallery might be, for example. So I think that can also happen in different places in different ways. Um, And sometimes it's not the work itself. And sometimes um, making work that doesn't have those aims is really important too. You know, having the freedom and the openness, you know, also is something that I feel like needs to be really um, defended on some level, which then becomes a political act. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Along uh, the lines of what you were saying, Leah, about just maybe it's okay just to make something goofy. Mm. I think it's radical to just make something. I feel like that's an inherently political act now. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, just like ex- like really zooming out on the United States as an entity, we don't have an industry here anymore. We don't make things. We consume information. We have this very like bizarre, amorphous financial market that's like does something with money that I don't even totally get so that's what we make now so just the act if you're just I mean your comments are really funny but uh, also pretty complex I think um, just you and yeah we all have day jobs that you know afford us a little bit of time to make things but just doing that is a model for I don't know 
I mean, this all comes back to like the body and things that are material. It's a model for something that's important, and you were you were talking about the echo, echo chamber. It's like a way of getting outside of that echo chamber, mm-hmm. and it is a, it's something I think that's like critical to just like our consciousness and our growth to do things with our hands. Um, yeah. I'd like to respond to that because I make my living making things with my hands that aren't specifically are not art. But if I didn't have that forum that I've given myself to make things constantly, I don't know what I would do with myself. Um, and this idea of making things being radical, that just like kind of blew my mind for a second because I because I do it every day, I don't think of it as at all radical, but I also try to get people to get interested in cooking food for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that has been so fucking hard mm-hmm. because people are always like, this is cool, how much is it I want to buy? <coughs> they don't want to engage with the idea that I'm trying to get them personally excited to go home and do it for themselves because it's cool and fun and it's mm-hmm. delicious and it's better or whatever, whatever their motivations are. Um, so I grapple with this all the time and I'm thinking about what you were talking about, about um, how do you engage the people, the communities that you're trying to engage with and Sarah as well mentioned that with some other projects I've been trying to do to get certain communities engaged and interested in a thing or an entity or an event. Um, And I don't know what the answer is, but I try really hard and I think food is a really exciting way to do it because I'm asking someone to put something inside their body that I have made and there's like a huge amount of trust there and it's amazing how many people will just not even think twice about it and then um, you're allowed to have a visceral response because you're supposed to, like you're, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested that sometimes the foods that I put in people's mouths bring out um, really exciting memories that I feel very connected to that person because I wasn't even intending to elicit that response, but it did, and then they want to share that with me, and I think that's really fun and exciting. Yeah. But it's all on this really tiny personal level, and I don't, maybe that's how building a public yeah, that's uh, perfect segue to what I wanted to say too. Because <laughs> uh, I wanted to respond to what Sarah said a while ago, and it also is kind of in response to what y'all have all said. But that we were talking about why we get in, together in groups, and my immediately, my brain immediately was like, well, it's shared experience, and we have to have shared experience mm-hmm. to build relationships as humans. Mm-hmm. And like, if you think about, or if I think about all the friend groups, I'm like, oh, I really want to be friends with all those people. Like, oh, but I wasn't there when they all did that, you know, and it's they had this shared experience that I didn't get to participate in, so their bonds are stronger than I will ever be able to participate in. Mm-hmm. But then you were talking about the responsibility of artists, and I would say the only thing I can say with any emotion that I would think for myself is the responsibility of artists is to share. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't keep it for yourself. Mm-hmm. You you know, I mean and you can and I know that yeah, but and I make songs that you know no one ever will hear sometimes. But I feel guilty when I do that because my responsibility is to share it, mm-hmm. and that's what brings people together. And what Kelly, you were talking about, but you know, how do you find like you don't you, you have these shared experiences with the selective audience that's your own community? But I think art when it's shared. Right, and you can't like if it is public, then mm-hmm. it's that's available to everyone, and you have points of connection that you wouldn't have had otherwise with people that you never would have 
Yeah. I mean, people at a show, people at right. a gallery. It's on the positive side of the thing I said. Like, I right. Mean, <laughs> like, there's so much power. I, I didn't tell you here. There's so much power in just, like, feeling like you can relate to someone. And, like, to be in this space. Like, uh, no matter how different we might be or how alike we might be, just to, like, have some commonality. Like, right. Like, there's, like, so much power in that. And that's why I feel strongly about yeah. the fact that art has a responsibility to be shared in the same way that yeah. food does. Because there are so few things that exist in the world that inherently we as people connect on. Mm-hmm. And art and food are two of those things. And it doesn't, you know, you can stand in a room and listen to a song next to someone that you have absolutely nothing in common with, but you're still both experiencing that music. Mm-hmm. And the experience of that, in just the same way as it would happen with art, visual art, you're, you are both experiencing that. You're experiencing it from different points of view and from different backgrounds and from you know whatever's happening in your body, but you're still in the same room and you're still there mm-hmm. together at the same time, mm-hmm. which is important. Yeah. But I, I wanted to add really quickly, and and Sarah, I'm, I'm really glad you're here because I, I see you like at all the cool everywhere <laughs> every everywhere I go anywhere in the world, you're there. <laughs> I think you're a really good member of the of the community, but um, I. I feel bad that I diverted, if, if I might have diverted the conversation to talking about what the responsibility of the artist is, because that, that's, everyone's going to have a different answer to that. When this discussion is more, I think, intended to be about the responsibility of, of the uh, publication. And it reminds me of this, this blog I tried, to, I tried to make in grad school, which was <clears throat> sort of a record of... Um, conceptual and performance art that required a document. It didn't have an object necessarily. So it's a blog about like video documentations and written documentations um, about works of art. And uh, I thought that was really interesting because it emphasized uh, a sort of work that really, um, um, that really, um, I have it written down. It, it emphasized a, uh, a, it emphasized a linguistic art, uh, an art that was about communication and, and about um, concepts and things um, <clears throat> that I thought at the time was, was, was very important. And so no matter what an artist's responsibility is, I think that, um, that the document or the, uh, or, or, or the publication about that work um, is maybe equally important if there's going to be any sort of communication about it. Um, and it's so interesting to have a book about a website because websites are kind of <laughs> websites are kind of the most immediate information, I guess, nowadays. Um, then magazines and then books because books take a long time to publish, um, and so there's kind of a lag in their information. Um, but I think the exciting thing about art publications. In art documentation, is that it kind of in the way in the writing style and in the photographs and videos or whatever the and and and, and conversations now with uh, podcast culture. Um, the exciting thing about art publications is that they maintain that freshness that the art has um, in a totally unique way. So, Gary, were you gonna say Oh, I was just gonna react to what you said about sharing, and I was just thinking about how. For me, my visual artwork is really the most effective way for me to share. And it's like, I might have 
trouble with conversation or with other ways of communicating, but that work is where I can, I'm confident that I can put something out there that is my way to really connect with other people. Yeah. Well, Deshaun, how does a podcast about a book about a website, how does that, <laughs> how does that create a public? Because like, a, a lot of this is surrounded around this kind of yeah. kickoff. Well, so what, what I can talk about is the podcast that I produced about around the film series. Um, and so one of the things that we try to do is to get people not just to listen to it, but to respond to it. Uh, and I was thinking about something that, Kelly, you said um, about sort of when people go to these things and lay and respond about, like, it's important that people, like, get it. Yeah. Um, and so the last film we screened was Meek's Cutoff, and afterwards I was talking to people who attended the screening, and one of the women who was there said it was the most boring movie she'd ever seen. And then so, like, I had this conversation with her and two other women who were there for maybe, like, five or ten minutes just about, like, what the film was, what it was about, what it was trying to say. And I don't know if I made her like the movie, but at least afterwards she sort of knew what Kelly Reichardt, the director, was trying to do. Um, and so I think it's kind of not, not really answering Hayne's question, but going back to the idea of, like, why it's important to me person is I was able to talk to someone who didn't necessarily agree with my opinion on the movie but we kind of were able to come to an understanding about that and I think what's neat about podcasting is that you can kind of relay those experiences um, and just preserve it indefinitely so that somebody can always find that conversation that you had about something and come back to it and learn something from it and we can always kind of respond to it so it's a permanent archival thing like a book No, that's super important, and, and we also think about our role of archiving very seriously. Um, a lot of the spaces that we are covering with projects like tend to be temporary. You know, they tend to only exist for one or two years, and then those spaces close, and they don't keep up their website, and they lose their domain, and then all of a sudden, our profile of that project is the only thing that's left. And so, I think just this role of archiving is like also a way in which to make this kind of awareness but I just wanted to say one last thing about this which is just building on what everyone's talking about which has been totally amazing but um, this idea of shared experience as a basis for how to develop respect and trust I think is what really puts it into the, that kind of political realm and um, in terms of how we can think about society in general. And that's, again, I just want to go back to those definitions of public because that was so helpful for me to think about how you could go from, if you have a dinner or you know a small opening that has 10 people and that's your immediate viewership public, you know, the ways that you know, by continuing to have these events or these places that people physically are gathering, that that can be grown over time to be a larger public of, you know, interest. And then hopefully you imagine, maybe directly or indirectly, that you're going to have some sort of impact in the broader public overall. So, I don't know. I think it, for me, it, it, it shed light on the way in which we can value these smaller gatherings and these smaller, more intimate ways of having shared experience and of being able to build respect and trust among small groups of people that can have kind of a rippling effect. Um, I, I hope that's my, that's my, my hope in this.
Yeah, I think that's a good closing. I don't know if anybody has other comments um, about this, but I, I think in the future, like with, with good weather especially, and me being more present at home and with this possible launching of the podcast, there's opportunities to gather and have these more intimate conversations that don't surround an artist's work or a gallery exhibition. Um, and I and I think that for Central Arkansas and for North Little Rock and Little Rock, I think that's an important next step in developing uh, ecology around the art world that can exist, that can keep people like Joseph around and like bring Lay people like Lamp back and et cetera. Thanks, thanks for coming, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Hans. And there's books. Thank you all for coming. That was awesome. All right, so we hope you enjoyed the talk. Haynes, tell us where we can order the book. So, Temporary Art Review to Make a Public can be ordered on IncaInstitute.org, which is Inca Press and MottoDistribution.com. And do you want to plug the Good Weather website? And our website is GoodWeatherGallery.com. You can visit and see the 33 solo exhibitions that we've presented over the past four years and other events and publications that we've produced. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, uh, and we'll see you next time.